first of all, I want to uh, welcome all of you to this newly launched series that also includes a study guide and worksheet for each of the next four sessions, including an intro uh, for this week, as we have as our working title three uh, classic interpretations of the atonement in light of St. Matthew's Passion. And we will also be uh, looking more broadly at the doctrine of the atonement over the next three weeks, um, also known as the doctrine of the work of Christ in Christian thought. And we might frame the central question of this atonement um, this way. What in the world was Jesus doing on the cross? Uh, and how does this relate to us some 2,000 years later? Today, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by two conversation partners in this lead-off introduction uh, with Dr. Steve Paulson, Professor of Systematic Theology at uh, Luther House of Study near Sioux Falls. And prior to this position, uh, Dr. Paulson served as a well-respected and well-beloved professor expertise in Martin Luther's theology and the Lutheran Confession. So welcome, Steve. Thanks very and much. it's been my great pleasure to know Dr. Paulson now for some 40 plus years since our seminary and doctoral studies together. And we're also joined by a young protege, my esteemed um, nephew, Nick Christofferson, who just graduated from Texas Christian University, soon to be in his first year of law studies at Wake Forest in North Carolina. So Nick, I was just thinking we have both law and gospel here. Uh, <laughs> good to have this dialectic. Uh, and Nick, you also have the, the dubious distinction of having known me uh, your entire life. Uh, Steve's only had to deal with me for 40, but uh, so I look forward and to Nick has this, no uh, idea you know. what 40 years of anything <laughs> would be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Dr. Paulson, this word atonement, uh, it sounds rather strange to our ears. Uh, in this time, um, how might you explain or uh, illustrate this strange word? And after some 35 years of your teaching uh, with seminary students and with lay people, what kinds of questions have they had about this particular doctrine that's so central in the uh, Christian church? Well, as you know, uh, atonement is a Latin word, like a lot of our words in English, and it means uh, that you have broken away from God, uh, separated, and now in Christ you are made at one again. So atonement <clears throat> means to be made at one, and it assumes you know uh, that uh, you are currently not united or at one uh, with your Lord even your own creator, and that something actually needs to be done in order to make that union occur again. So that's what it's taking up. And then you also know that uh, when we're talking about things like doctrine or teachings or theories or a doctrine of atonement and so on, one of the strange things about this is that no one has ever had a special counsel Nobody has ever um, made uh, some sort of special uh, study 
and then made it an official um, doctrine of the church to say precisely what uh, happened at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and why that matters to us presently. So when we talk about a doctrine of atonement, uh, we're talking about various theologians uh, in particular who are trying to say something about that to us. But the uh, church has not said more than what we find in the creeds. Uh, for example, that Christ was um, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died and was buried, descended into hell, and rose again the third day, sitting at the right hand of the Father. That's all we know. And uh, theologians have tried to fill in why that was needed and what benefit we get from it. So, for example, since you just referenced the creeds, um, there was a council put together, for example, in the fourth century, um, because there's quite a bit of debate about understanding um, Jesus uh, as human and as divine. And uh, there were people that were kind of siding up with either one or the other, and some heresies arose, and so they needed to really settle that question. But uh, I've, I've never really thought of it that way, that we didn't, uh, throughout the last 2,000 years, have some kind of council or gathering that dealt, um, first of all, with Christology or um, the, the being of understanding Jesus as true God and true man, as we confess in the creeds, but uh, for us and for our salvation, uh, Christ, you know, um, gave of his self, uh, God's self, for us. And so that would explain why perhaps we have this plethora of these different interpretations. Yeah, and it's why uh, they, we, we uh, flip around in, uh, in teaching theology or teaching the history of doctrine or church history. We flip around to say uh, things like atonement theories. Uh, this is a way of trying to recognize that we don't have a settled creedal statement about it. And you're right, when we teach doctrine, one of the things that we notice is that the first set of doctrines that the church had councils about and, and came to some a written conclusion about uh, had to do with the Trinity. How is it that we say that we have one God, but, they, they, but we pray to three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? So the first thing that was settled was the doctrine of the Trinity. And then the second thing that came from that is what you were describing. Sometimes that's called uh, Christology but it's talking about the person of Jesus. How could Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, be true God and then uh, actually become incarnate, a true human being? And so uh, it was usually put this way, that, uh, that we, ha we, we have learned how to preach properly uh, what the relationship is in the person of Christ between the human and divine natures, one person, two natures, as we say, that's a settled doctrine. But then we get to the part about uh, atonement, as it's usually called, what you're thinking about today. 
uh, and that is uh, usually called what the uh, not what the person of Christ is about, but what the work of Christ is about. So uh, that, but that work of Christ, though it is clearly um, the central part of uh, the New Testament, and is clearly the center part of any sermon that is preached, and is the center part of the confession of faith that we make, but we don't have a, um, an official council-approved written uh, a description about exactly how you are to preach it in order to make it true gospel. And uh, that's why we start talking about these various people and ways and words that they use or theories and, uh, uh, and so on. Um, when you speak about at-one-ment, atonement, uh, being made right with God, uh, perhaps this gets in the weeds a little bit, but I think it's important that we understand that we are not made righteous before God, but we are made right before God. Because one of the interpretations that we're going to be giving some study to here is called the humanistic or the moral or exemplary interpretation that Jesus uh, on the cross is basically some kind of example or a great moral example of how we are to lead our lives as Christians. And so you almost don't even need a cross for that um, as a moral exemplar. And so if you would maybe just speak about this language, particularly from St. Paul, about being made right with God and the righteousness of God. Yeah, when you, uh, when you uh, distinguish um, the words, again, we're, we're taking uh, here a Latin word. Uh, this is also true in much of Latin that it's, it's borrowing from a Greek word, but when we take these words and we try to identify the difference between something like righteousness or being made right, mm -hmm. what we're actually doing is what Martin Luther taught better than anyone, and that is to learn the difference between the law and the gospel. Mm -hmm. Because when you don't know the difference between those two, you could never make the distinction uh, that you just made. That is, uh, that there's a difference between being made right and righteousness. Righteousness is uh, what we typically understand to be right according to the measure of the law. And if you are righteous in the, in the measure of the law, you can speak about uh, righteousness in your own self. So that if you're standing before the judge and the de judge declares you not guilty, uh, you actually are righteous in yourself. This is, uh, this is not just uh, made up. By the same token, you could say that you could even measure your own righteousness by looking at how well you've climbed up the ladder of the law. How far have you gone? How close have you gotten to something like pure love and so on? And then you can measure your own righteousness, your own saintliness, uh, your own holiness, and it was Luther who came in and said, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. 
And uh, he says, um, when Paul speaks about it, Paul says it's apart from the law. And he says the righteousness is not your own. You don't own it, and it is not you yourself. It is a righteousness that is another's, that comes from Christ. And there you actually uh, do have to say, how in the world can somebody else's righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, ever become my own or something for me? Um, it sounds like kind of a dream or a, a fakery, um, and I wonder how that happens. And that, of course, is what we mean by talking about the crucifixion of Christ, and therefore, uh, in doctrine, the atonement, or how it is that Christ's death actually becomes a righteousness that he can give to me, even though it has not been earned or produced by me according to the law. Uh, Nick, you have a follow-up question here? Yeah, well... <laughs> We kind of have a structure that we were going to put this along with, but I, I, I guess I've also been given license to free will uh, to kind of <laughs> make things up a little too. And I, hey, I, I, I love it. Free will here. Yeah. Another <laughs> no, but I had a question in regard to uh, how we define the gospel. Um, Cause to me, it seems kind of like an umbrella term and people talk about the gospel, but they never uh, define it very clearly. And I, what I've come to think of the gospel as is the sentence, your sins are forgiven on account of Jesus Christ. Is that pretty much in line with what we consider to be the gospel? Yes, uh, it frightens me a little bit when I hear these things from you, Nick, because I wonder uh, what, what a waste uh, that uh, we would take such a great theologian of the gospel and simply make a lawyer out of him. <laughs> Uh, but in any case, uh, you are quite right. Uh, this is, uh, the, it, you've described the gospel correctly. Oftentimes, a uh, gospel is used in a, a abstract, general, vague way. That's the way you uh, started and recognize that that's common. In fact, this was an old uh, Lutheran discovery. It was discovered by Philip Melanchthon. Uh, because Philip, uh, Philip Melanchthon sort of fell into this. He was Luther's uh, co-teacher and friend. And um, Melanchthon himself, in his lectures, would often speak about gospel, and it would be abstract and vague. And his students uh, then said, well, we have to learn specifically what this means uh, so that we're not just saying that the gospel is any happy thing that happens to you. Yeah. or that it all ends up well in the end, or something like that, because that's not what we mean when we baptize people or give them communion or preach to them and so on. And so it was Melanchthon who said, well, you're right. We have to be careful when we're using big G gospel in a vague and general way, which seems sort of like uh, saying um, uh, that, that uh, you're, you're saying something positive in general. And when we're saying something specific, uh, and the specific thing is how the gospel is different than the law and makes you righteous apart from that law, which is exactly what you just described. That means gospel, little g gospel, which, which we mean to be 
not less important, but more important because it is specific for you. The thing that will save you, make you righteous, make you holy, is this little G gospel, which is, I forgive you on account of Christ. And when you've got that, you now have what we call a promise. You don't have a general idea, a vague and general uh, notion of something like goodness or uh, grace or something like that, but you have a very specific promise that's been given to you. And when you have a specific promise, suddenly faith is generated or made that clings or holds on to that promise. And the promise that you just uh, articulated is given only by Christ because he is the only one who died on the cross and was raised on the third day. No one else uh, has this, makes this claim, or has the power to forgive. Whether it's Mohammed who comes after Christ, uh, or whether it is Moses who comes before, or any other great figure, Plato or anyone else, uh, and so we always come back with the gospel to this matter of Christ on the cross and what happened there so that he could actually turn around and forgive us, and it works. That's, uh, that's the amazing thing. We have, a, we have three logs. The top log is the gospel, and that gospel is you are forgiven because of Christ. Now, the two supporting logs in what I've kind of come to think of is maybe Christ's atoning acts. And so when we speak of atonement, are we talking about we're, we're trying to figure out the process by which the gospel came to be? Is that a fair assessment? And I mean, we're kind of describing how we came to the gospel. And then on the other post, we have the resurrection. And I know we're not talking about that here, but I don't fully understand what the purpose of the re resurrection is because it seems like we've already had the lamb sacrificed. The, the payment was given uh, to the, like I was the debtor and someone came in and paid my, my debt. And so I'm free. Now, why, where, why is the resurrection needed? That's right. Well, you've just explained the big uh, problem with one of the atonement theories. Uh, and that atonement theory that you just described is usually attributed to the uh, first great scholastic theologian, uh, scholar theologian or a theologian uh, that is eventually going to make the cross into a mathematical equation. That's Anselm. And um, you just described it correctly. Anselm is going to say that, uh, that Christ's cross pays your debt. That's the quickest way of saying it. There are other variations that he uses, uh, but that's the quickest one. And uh, of course, if Christ uh, dies on the cross to pay your debt, then you'll notice that you don't need a resurrection. And that's what you just pointed out. Then the resurrection is superfluous. It doesn't really make any difference. Uh, and, um, 
and the most you could say about it is that it would be something like uh, icing on the cake or uh, yeah. you know, the celebration after the fact or something like that. So you're quite right that there's something wrong with that description because it doesn't hold the two things together. You called them logs. Uh, they are the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it really was Luther again who recognized that the church had lost connection here. So that when it was talking about the atonement, it, it actually lost track of the resurrection. And uh, Luther keeps pointing out that the, that the crucifixion and the resurrection are actually two things that not only occurred historically, but that God himself used to make us righteous apart from the law. And the crucifixion of Jesus Christ itself is not uh, the, the thing that does it, nor uh, there are a whole group of theologians that fell on the other side who said, well, it re really wasn't the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that mattered. It's only his resurrection. And uh, as long as you believe in a resurrected man, you are saved. But uh, Luther observed, um, if you don't understand or uh, um, hear from the preacher what the crucifixion is, and you don't understand and hear from the preacher what the resurrection is, there is no way that you will ever hear the simple promise that you said was the gospel correctly, Nick, I forgive you on account of Christ. You won't, you won't have the on account of Christ, which is the crucifixion, and you won't have the I forgive you, which is the resurrection. And uh, Luther says, these people are gonna get caught because what they've done is try to understand the crucifixion according to the law alone, or the resurrection according to the law alone, and then they'll be, they'll sit on one side or the other. We're a resurrection people or we're a crucifixion people. We're theologians of the cross or we're the new Easter people. And you hear church people say these things all the time and they're all screwed up. They don't know uh, what they're talking about and they, they uh, don't know how to give nor the, do they know how to receive the simple promise from Christ, I forgive you. Chano, are you going to let me take another swing or do you want to go? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and this is going to come back around. Uh, we were talking earlier before you got on, Dr. Paulson, about uh, the Schmalkald articles and on faith alone, you are saved. Um, so when you, when you broke the gospel into the two component parts, the, I, you are forgiven, I forgive you, and then the second part, on account of Christ. That first part, which is in reference and connected to the resurrection, could you not say, I forgive you if Christ had not beaten death? Is that the idea that he overcame death? Death is, is sin? I'm kind of mixing a lot of terms. Um, but had he not overcome death, uh, then we would not be able to say, you are forgiven. Uh, you are free from death. You are free from sin. And then... Okay, so we have the first part, you are forgiven. The second part, on account of Christ. 
together that is the gospel and we say by faith alone in this gospel you are saved so I was, and then so the first part is addressing uh the why you are forgiven in relation to the resurrection the second part of the question is how does that relate to by faith alone you are saved from luther's uh small called articles well, that's very nice, and uh, goodness sakes, uh, you know, when do I find people who are actually reading the small cold article? So uh, that itself is a miracle, and I'm giving thanks uh, right now in my heart. Now, uh, the next thing is even better. You uh, you you recognize there uh, that uh, that the uh, uh, I forgive you. Uh, is the matter of the resurrection. I want to just stay with that for a minute. Um, one human being can forgive another human being. That is perfectly possible without Jesus Christ ever coming into the picture. And if I said to you, I forgive you, Nick, uh, the first thing you would say was, well, I didn't realize I really did anything wrong to you, Dr. Paulson. Uh, then, uh, then we would have a discussion and whether or not you really have sinned. And then the real issue comes back uh, to me, whether or not I actually have the power, the wherewithal, or now I'm going to say the convincing power to you that I've actually forgiven you. And here's the problem. When one human being forgives another human being, and even pagans understood that forgiveness was necessary in life, otherwise people could never go forward. They wouldn't actually live with each other uh, over a period of time. But the problem is that when I forgive you, you don't really believe it. Uh, you don't believe that I have the power to do it, and you don't believe that I'm gonna stick with that over a period of time, and lo and behold, experience in life shows fairly quickly that when one human being forgives another, it doesn't really stick. It doesn't really work. And the reason that it doesn't work is twofold. One is that the person give, getting it uh, is not sure uh, that the promise is, um, is, is trustworthy. And that leads to the second one, uh, that is, um, I can forgive you one day and then unforgive you the next. Uh, I'm not necessarily consistent on this. I might not stick with it. In fact, human beings are made just like that. This is what we mean by sin. They forgive and then they turn around uh, the next day and they withdraw it. They don't follow through. They are not consistent. They're not trustworthy. Now, what we need is a forgiveness that's trustworthy. And this actually now requires a true human being, one speaking to another. But uh, now it requires also the full and complete authority of God, who is the only one finally that can forgive and make it stick. That is, will be trustworthy when he makes a promise. And the only one who can actually uh, raise the dead or be raised from the dead in this way is God himself. This is why the church early on pointed out that when Christ forgives or when he's raised from the dead, he is both human and divine, completely and utterly. 
this is something that you and I don't have. When I forgive you, I, do, I am not divine. When Christ forgives you, he is completely and totally divine. And when he forgives you, it's the same as the Father in heaven, that is the creator, God, the big kahuna, the one who is overall. Uh, and when he does that, he is forgiving with the full authority of God himself, which is the only forgiveness that actually works. And uh, now one more thing. When Christ forgives, he actually needs to forgive you of the great big sin, the sin of all sins. That is the sin against God himself that finally put Christ on the cross. That is the full and complete rejection and opposition of us as human creatures to our own creator. So that when he sends his only begotten son, what we do is not listen to him, believe him, trust him, follow him, uh, imitate him, and so on, but we crucify him. And when we do that, we are crucifying God himself, and only God can forgive that. And when, uh, when Christ turns around and forgives, it is the crucified one who has borne this sin, and yet he is the resurrected one who will never die. Both of these are operating at the same time. Both the human and divine are operating. And that's a long way of saying, when he forgives us, he is forgiving the sin of all sins, the sin against God himself. The first commandment, I do not trust you, I do not believe you, I, I do not hold you as my God. Instead, I actually crucify and kill you. And secondly, he does it uh, in true faithfulness with full authority of the divine, and it actually works. So now he's forgiven a sin that goes beyond any that you knew before, and he is also able to be trustworthy and stick to it. Uh, and both the crucifixion and the resurrection had to occur. The sin had to occur, and the complete divine forgiveness of it had to occur, which means that the forgiveness will never end. It can only be said about God. Does that help? Yeah. So with the resurrection comes Christ's divinity. Yes. Well, Christ... Uh, this is fair enough. Christ was divine before he ever became human, before he was ever crucified, and before he was ever resurrected. That is all true. It continues. It never stopped. Uh, he is the Alpha and the Omega. He was from the beginning. He is at the end. However, the divinity never stopped throughout all of these things, being born in a manger, being crucified, being put in a tomb, uh, descending into hell, and on the third day being raised by his father, his divinity never stops. And the, the, the hardest thing for people about this, this is actually the hardest thing for their atonement theory, is that they cannot finally believe that when Jesus Christ, the man, dies on the cross, the God also dies. 
who is not one third of God, but all of God, and therefore God himself is dead on the cross. No one can grasp or hold this. No one can comprehend it. No one believes it until he is raised on the third day and he actually speaks to us uh, with a word of forgiveness and we start living an entirely new life with an entirely new uh, relation and understanding of who our God is. Nick, I, I really uh, appreciate what Steve is saying here because I think with these theories of the atonement, uh, with these interpretations of what Christ was about, his work on the cross, can easily slip into being an idea, uh, a theory, and we lose sense of the event, uh, the actual work of it. And so I think one of the things that we need to be attentive to as we work through these theories of the atonement is, is there an emphasis and a connection of the incarnation with the uh, crucifixion and resurrection? And also, when you ask the question about the gospel, I think of the beginning of Mark, where he says in the very first verse, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here again, gospel, if it is not linked with the person of Jesus, can easily become an abstraction, an idea. And so I think when we look at these atonement theories, we always need to be mindful of these aren't just about ideas, but how do we always bring it back to Christ and what Christ has done for us? And I know this is true to, you know, really close to Dr. Paulson's heart too in proclamation and preaching, because one thing is we can speak about different theories on why Jesus died or how Jesus died on the cross. But um, it's one thing to say Jesus died and talk about it, but it's something very different to say Jesus died for you. And this is the event. This is the proclamation. This is God's word for you. Uh, that's very personal. And it's not just an idea. And so in our Lutheran tradition, um, that comes out of the, um, oh boy, Steve would have to help me on my history here with just the mass. It's been around for centuries but we open up our worship experience, our worship service with the words of confession and forgiveness. And I remember in campus ministry, <laughs> I got an earful from a student who came up to me and said, how dare you say that my sins are forgiven? You, as Dr. Paulson was saying, you know, as, as another uh, schlep, as another you know, uh, human critter, and I said to him, I said, Dave, you have to be attentive that when we as pastors give this word of forgiveness, we say as a called or an ordained minister, here's the critical part, of the church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare to you the entire forgiveness. And so that's something in this series I think we always have to be attentive to 
as Dr. Paulson has pointed out, is that um, we, we need to be constantly aware that there's an affirmation going on of both the humanity of Jesus, his identifying with us in the flesh, as John says in his prologue, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but also uh, his divinity. And now we're going full circle back to the Council of Nicaea uh, back in 325 that spoke about Jesus is both fully human, able to identify with us in our suffering, and we look to the cross to know that we're not alone in the pain and suffering of this world. This is a strong pastoral note but also that um, Christ is also divine. He is of God. He is God. And so there is the resurrection. Here's where the, the octoritas or the authority comes from. Uh, again, as Dr. Paulson was saying, it comes from God. It doesn't come from some spasm within uh, my blood and flesh as another human being, but it comes from God, who is the creator um, of, of all things. And uh, so I think that's, that's something very important that we hold together in all this. Uh, Steve, do you have a, a response to anything there? Well, right. This is the difference between uh, atonement theories that talk about the cross right. and actually giving the mm -hmm. cross. And the difference between those becomes enormous. You, you said it correctly. This is the difference between saying, this is what uh, I think happened on the cross uh, and saying, uh, this was for you. And the, uh, this is why we always uh, do what Paul did in his first letter to the Corinthians. He said, it's not just about the cross, it's the preaching of the cross. And that's what keeps uh, getting lost. Uh, it's not just an explanation about the amazing events that took place, uh, that, uh, that God who became a human being somehow strangely ended up on the cross. How could this happen? And so on. What's going on there? Why did God allow it? Here was an innocent man who nevertheless uh, got stuck up on the cross. What are we going to do? And how do we say it? But all of this now comes back to the particular matter of the fact that he is doing it for you. And that has a double hit. He's doing it because you wouldn't have it any other way. You, you wouldn't go any other kind of direction. I don't care how many uh, lawyers tell me they could have gotten Jesus Christ off. Uh, and that uh, they, he was truly an innocent man and so on. Right. Yeah, the, 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 the truth of the matter is that even if you were Christ's lawyer, you would have thrown him under the bus uh, with, along with everybody else uh, and said, this man finally does deserve to die. And, uh, and the second thing is that he did this all graciously uh, out of true love, even mm -hmm. while you were a sinner. And uh, uh, both of these things are going to be necessary. Let me ask you that. This uh, were you thinking, especially in this uh, section, to um, uh, to think a little bit about one particular 
uh, description that's often given that comes from Abelard, the uh, the theory of love, or were you saving that for a later podcast? Uh, is this a question for me or for you? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think in our time, there are two uh, theories or interpretations of the atonement that people are are working with, uh, whether subconsciously or consciously, and that is since Mel Gibson's film came out, um, it it is clear that many people see uh, Jesus' death on a cross on the cross as a ransom that has been paid uh, to God because humanity can't sufficiently make ourselves right before God. And so it takes Jesus as the God-man, the perfect uh, one, who is perfectly obedient to God, to pay this price, uh, this sense of satisfaction is a word that we'll find in there. And um, I think that's really kind of a classic that still, I mean, I know I was raised up in the piety of our household with this understanding that Jesus paid the price for us, uh, ransomed us. But something that comes out of that that's really important, I think, is the sense of freedom that Christ gives us as we are forgiven, that the price has been paid. But at the same time, and I'd love to hear your take on this, I really believe that since the Enlightenment and the rationalism that was going on there, that um, Jesus became this exemplar, this moral example of how it is that we are to lead a mm -hmm. godly life. I mean, for heaven's sake, in First uh, John 4, the very nature of God, the very being of God is described as God is love. And so... Um, we are in this particular interpretation of the atonement called to love one another as Christ has first loved us. And so um, there we have this sense in which I think today we have the social gospel that gets us right back into what you were talking about earlier about ladder climbing. Mm -hmm. um, and we will be talking later about people like Schleiermacher, or perhaps even uh, stateside, somebody like Rauschenbusch, who had what they called the social gospel. And in our time, um, and there are many things to be, what should I say, commended here uh, with regard to the social gospel and seeking justice in our world. But then again, it becomes, as you said earlier, about the self, and then I'll just put the two words together, self-righteous. And um, so I'd be curious, in your mind, as you watch movies, as you hear students talk today, as you read the paper, watch the news, which theory of the atonement do you think is most prevalent in people's mind, whether it's in the church or those who are unchurched? Well, you may have already uh, talked about this in other um, podcasts, but as you no, know, one this of the, is the great, very first one. 
as well, well, I mean, uh, as you know, uh, Pastor Christofferson, the one of the great uh, teachers uh, of so-called atonement theories. In fact, one of the people that helped organize the way that we teach this in doctrine courses and also think about this in uh, church life uh, was Gustav Allen. Mm -hmm. And um, Gustav Allen uh, suggested there were three basic so-called theories or descriptions of atonement. Uh, and we can go into those uh, in the future. Uh, one of them tends to be the one that is called the ancient or older form that was used for uh, the first thousand years of preaching in the church for how you preach the cross of Christ. And goodness sakes, you know, if it's there for a thousand years, there must have been something uh, to that. Uh, and um, this is the... Uh, this is the description of how it is that Christ um, outwitted Satan on the cross, tricked him, um, and how he became victorious uh, over the powers of Satan. And it was Alain who was actually trying to re recall or resurrect that uh, old theory, though he tried to make some changes with it as well. Uh, and he thought that Martin Luther was closer to that one than, uh, than the other ones that had been uh, more popular since that time. But ever since um, the thousand-year mark, um, a, a, a set of two other descriptions, theories, have tended to dominate. And that's what you're talking about up to the present day. So it's very interesting, right around in the 12th century, but you can even go right back to around a thousand. Um, you had uh, a people who were getting frustrated with the preaching of the cross as a victory over Satan. And their main problem with, with having preachers stand in front of them on Good Friday and on Easter and tell them that the cross, and actually every, every Sunday, uh, tell them that the cross was a, uh, a victory uh, won by Christ uh, over Satan, was that Jesus had to uh, lie in order to become victorious. He had to cheat Satan. He had to trick Satan. Um, so we can uh, go into what that meant, but by, by about uh, a thousand years, uh, people in the church began to say, I don't like to say that I am saved by a Christ who tricked Satan. That doesn't seem uh, proper to me. And in fact, what they're doing is organizing things according to the law to say, uh, certainly the Christ that I love and trust and so on cannot be a liar, a cheat, a... Uh, uh, someone who snuck uh, something through on Satan and so on. And so they began to put di uh, different theories in that sounded or made Christ sound like he was a good person worthy of following uh, and not simply a trickster, um, not simply uh, 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 someone who tricked Satan into taking the hook, as it usually was put from the, uh, from the book of Job. 
that would make uh, Jesus into nothing but a lousy uh, uh, Minnesota, uh, nor a northern Minnesota fisherman who tricks bass and walleye uh, into coming into his boat. Uh, and certainly Christ had to be bigger and better than that. And uh, so uh, we have right around a thousand into the, especially in the 12th century, we have these two figures, Anselm and Abelard, who are more or less um, uh, uh, coterminous, and they are fighting for a better way of describing Christ. One of them ends up in the description you gave of, uh, of paying a debt. We mentioned it before with Anselm. The other one uh, comes out with Abelard, who says that, uh, that Jesus dying on the cross is the greatest example that a human being could ever get in life. It is the greatest act of love ever performed by any person, uh, any time, and therefore is truly a divine inspiration to us, so that when we look him at him at the cross, we, we cannot help but have our hearts aflame with passion for what it is that Jesus Christ has actually done on the cross. And believe me, Abelard was a man of passions, too many passions, uh, some of you may know, uh, so that uh, he was one of the greatest lovers of all time uh, and uh, wrote one of the legendary books when he fell in love with his with one of his nuns, uh, and uh, you know, our uh, this is for a church, so we can't go. Uh, this podcast is for a church, so we can't into <laughs> great details. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Abelard and Heloise were uh, two of the greatest passionate lovers of all time, and they have left one of the great books uh, for those of you who don't know how to fall in love. This is for you. And Abelard uh, now is laying out what it means uh, in the same way for Christ to attract us by power of passion so that his death on the cross teaches us how to love. Now, you can guess what I think is the most popular presently. <laughs> this passionate teaching of Christ on the cross for how to love. And maybe we should wait for next time to take that one up. So, uh, what I would greatly cherish um, is in the next in the next three uh, weeks, we are going to and and Dr. Paulson has wet our appetite here to we to Dr. Love uh, uh, Abelard um, in the third session. So, the first session we're going to focus on what is understood as being the objective uh, interpretation of the atonement, and um, sometimes referred to as the Latin view, uh, put forward by Anselm, and um, some of the rationalism there with the beautiful syllogisms that he puts out there in his treatise entitled, Why Did God Become Man? And he lays this all out very eloquently, but it's, as as we talked about, can become fair, fairly sterile. And uh, each of these theories we'll find have shortcomings. In the next week following that, we're going to talk about um, another interpretation, which is uh, the one um, 
that comes to us um, in terms of the um, oh well in terms of the matter of uh, of love this is Abelard right well yeah I was going to keep that until the end well, you were going to save that for the last appetite there well, but I was going to I was going to go with the uh, I was going to go with with the Christus Victor. You're thinking about uh, how it is that Christ, the, the ancient one, how Christ yeah, was yeah. furious over Satan. Yeah, the second, the second one that we'll walk through is, is the one uh, with Gustav Alain with the um, Christus Victor. And um, uh, then on the third one, we will talk about uh, the viewpoint of the, uh, of the subjective moral example. Um, and as we go through them, we'll try to lift up what are some of the positive points and some of those that are, are negative. And hopefully in all of this, we will, in the study of these, uh, be looking at certain scriptural passages. And this is, this is kind of key, too, to it, is to realize that all of these people, Anselm, Abelard, uh, Luther, and others, they always sought to base their interpretation of the atonement on scripture. And, um, but to realize as well that there's no theory that's going to save us, uh, but it is Christ. And um, another thing that I would like people to be aware of is the hymnody. I'd like for people as we walk through this, as we go through the three classic interpretations of the atonement, to uh, think about hymns in the life of the church that speak to these different understandings of what Christ has done for us in his uh, cross and his resurrection. I think, uh, you know, um, our hymns at once reflect our theology in the church, but they also inform it uh, when we sing it, if we're paying attention to the lyrics. So um, again, to recapitulate, we will um, next week focus on Anselm and the Latin or objective view. Next week, we'll talk about um, uh, Christus Victor with uh, Alain and Luther and what comes out of the ancient church as well, sometimes uh, referred to as the classic interpretation. And then the third week, we will talk talk about um, the Abelardian view, which speaks about the importance of, of uh, the moral example of Christ, almost to the point in which we skip over the fact um, that God is in Christ reconciling the world, um, that we, we lose sense in that third one of the importance of the incarnation. And then we'll have some summaries um, in, the, in, the, in the concluding uh, session as well. So thanks to Dr. Paulson for your time on this beautiful Sunday afternoon uh, where the outdoors is calling. And, and Nick, if you have uh, some concluding question for, for us today, um, go for it. I'm going to let you guys off the hook. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm bummed. Yeah, fair enough. But uh, I just hope that by the time we get to uh, Abelard, that Nick is going to be old enough to take all of that. They did uh, <laughs> say the old, the, the old uh, 
the old teachers used to say, uh, the old rabbis used to say that a person should not read uh, the uh, Song of Solomon until he's 60 years old. And I would say the same thing about uh, going through Abelard. So we'll see if we can include him or not by then. <laughs> well, Dr. Paulson and Nick, thank you for uh, helping us set the stage for this series on uh, the Doctrine of the Atonement. And um, God's grace to you today. And see you next time.